You're listening to the British GT Fan Show. This show is for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, redistributed or used in any other form without permission. For more information about this, please visit our website www.bgtfshow.co.uk or contact us via our social media at bgtfshow. Hello and a slightly saddened welcome to the latest episode of the British GT Fans Show. Uh, we're recording this episode on the night of Sunday, the 1st of August, and obviously we we would be remiss. In fact, we would be flat out wrong uh, not to recognise uh, that it was a very, very sad day in British motorsport yesterday. Um, Brands Hatch was hosting a Bark race meeting, uh, Brit car and a number of classic touring car races uh, were racing on the 31st of July. Uh, during one of those races, uh, there was an accident uh, somewhere in, in the first sector of the lap, uh, which resulted in a car obviously leaving the track, uh, clearing the gravel trap and landing in contact with the Marshall's post. Um, we don't know any more details than that. Uh, but what we do know is that unfortunately, uh, Bark have confirmed in a statement, uh, that one of the marshals that was on post volunteering his time so that we can all enjoy our racing, uh, died as a result of injury sustained in that incident. Um, it's, it's a massively sad thing. Um, we're all in this for the love and for the joy um, and the marshals that, that that give their time freely uh, so that racing can take place uh, are heroes, uh, flat out heroes. Um, and when we lose one of the uh, one of the orange army, it, it's it's really, really sad. And I'm, I'm actually getting tearful here and I, I don't even know who it is. Um, but our our thoughts, our feelings, uh, for any of those of you that pray, please your prayers as well uh, to the family and the friends of of the marshal who who died as a result of this accident at Brands Hatch yesterday. Uh, what we can also say, because I've I've communicated with Andrew Brightman, who formerly was on the show. Uh, what I can say is that none of the marshals that appeared on our show were the marshal involved in in, in that incident. We, we just thoughts and prayers. For the families, uh, for the family and the friends of of the marshal who gave his life so that so that we could be what we love, um, there's not really a lot more we can say. We have a couple of news items, uh, which isn't that much, but we do have a very compact season at the moment with a lot of races. Uh, in quite close schedule. Um, I think Nick and I were both slightly caught unawares when we realised that Snatterton was just two weeks after Spa. The first announcement being that Oman Racing by TF Sports have announced that they will be racing at Snatterton next week. And Ahmad Alhati will be teaming up with AMR factory driver Charlie Eastwood. Now, the team were due to race last year, 
uh, with Al Harty partnering Johnny Adam, but COVID prevented this from happening. Um, so it's really good that we'll be able to see them. I believe this is going to be their first race since uh, Asian Le Mans at the start of the year. Uh, so it would be good to see another Aston in GT3 and how they get on. Uh, GCAT Porsche have also confirmed they'll be extending their schedule for this year and will be competing at Snetterton next week as well. And they'll also be at the Donington Decider in October. Of course, our trip to Spa uh, coincided with Speed Week and the culmination of which is the 24 hours of Spa. And Nick's going to talk us through the highlights and lowlights of that event. We'll start off with the lowlights um, because just as there was a rather substantial accident at Brands Hatch yesterday, there was also a rather substantial accident at Spa. Uh, it was very early on, just nine laps or, or 22 minutes into the 24-hour race. Um, and it involved four vehicles. Uh, it was quite shocking. It was a, a, a very, very big accident indeed. Basically, Jack Aitken uh, of Williams F1 reserve driver fame uh, lost control of his Emil Frey Lamborghini on his way through a rouge. And as we know from British GT, as we know from 24 hours of Spa, as we know from pretty much anything that races at Spa, there is no such thing as a small accident at Rouge and Radion. Jack uh, managed to, there's no other way of putting this, he ripped the side clean off the car, bounced off the tyre wall and ended up on the racing line. Uh, a matter of a second or two later, uh, he was struck by his teammate in one of the other ML Frey Lamborghinis, uh, which spanned the car violently across the track, separated the engine from the chassis. And then in the course of that accident, I've seen a video of it. It's not, not nice watching at all. But in the course of the accident, um, two other vehicles were involved. The vehicles involved were the number 114 Emil Frey Racing Lamborghini, the sister car, the 163, driven by Jack Aitken and Frank Pereira, respectively. Uh, Kevin Estray was in the number 21 uh, Retronic Racing Porsche, and Davide Regal was in the number 71 Iron Lynx Ferrari. Um, as we have come to expect, um, straightaway marshals were on the scene. Uh, there were still cars coming past very, very quickly as the first marshal reached the the car of Frank Pereira, for example, uh, from the from the video footage that I've seen. Um, uh, Kevin Estro and Frank Pereira uh, were retrieved from their vehicles, sent to the circuit medical centre. Uh, after they were checked at uh, the Circuit Medical Center, they were released back to the teams. Uh, uh, Jack Aitken and Davide Regon uh, were taken to hospital for further examination. Uh, Jack spent the night in hospital, having suffered uh, fractures to his collarbone and vertebrae, and also a minor lung contusion as well. Um, he's described as a, in a stable condition, uh, and 
by the time we record this, should have been uh, released from hospital to to start his journey home. Um, All in all, quite a scary accident. Um, As I say, you don't have small accidents there. It's just a testament to the build of the cars, uh, to the safety uh, that is now engineered into every racing car and every racing driver's equipment and to the fantastic work of the marshals and the the circuit and series medical staffs. Davide Regon um, was taken to Hospital in the Age along with uh, Jack Aitken, but was released before midnight after, after a checkup. The, obviously, the Iron, Iron Lynx driver was, uh, was released whilst wearing a back brace as a precautionary measure. It's not certain whether Davide will be able to take up his place in the uh, in the AF Corsa Ferrari at Le Mans at, uh, later on this month. Um, but um, really, with with regards to this accident, it was not nice. Uh, we were very lucky; it wasn't a lot worse. Talking of luck, and talking of things that are nice. And talking of iron links, uh, we can now move on to something a little bit nicer. So, whilst iron links are faced with the heavy task of repairing the number 71 car, uh, which should have been shared by Antonio Fucio and Callum Eilot uh, with David Davide Regon, um, they get to celebrate the the victory, actually. Uh, the number 51 car, Iron Lynx entered Ferrari 488 GT3, driven by Com Ledegar, Nicholas Nilsson, and Alessandro Pergidi, went on to take the victory. It was a pretty much race-long battle at the front um, between three three cars, with, with others guesting in, in places as well. Um, but... Iron Lynx managed to come out on top. Uh, only three cars finished on the lead lap, uh, which was the lap five, five, six. After 24 hours, uh, Iron Lynx was 3.978 seconds clear of the Audi Sport Team WRT, um, obviously Audi R8 of Lawrence Van Thor, Kelvin van der Linde, and I always get this one wrong. Uh, so I'm going back to the entry list to check whether it's uh, Christian or Chris. It's Charles. Wait. <laughs> Told you I always get it wrong. Uh, <laughs> you had two options there and neither were right. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, a further 1 minute 21 seconds behind was the number 95 car from Garage 59. Um, last car on the lead lap and this one is a car with some real British GT interest it's one of two cars that are full of pure British GT talent uh, the Aston Martin Vantage AMR GT3 of Nicky team who set the fastest lap of the race um, and he set it not far after the halfway mark either um, you expect fastest laps at night during 24 hour races um, so Nicky Team, Ross Gunn and Marco Sorensen, all of whom have obviously raced in British GT in the last three years. Um, so they took third place, uh, which was quite an achievement. There's other British GT talent spread throughout the field. 
And whilst I'm going to try and catch as much of it as I can, I'm expecting messages from um, Tom Hornsby later on saying I missed this one or that one. Um, the number number 38 car uh, finished seventh. That's the Jota Sport run McLaren 720S GT3. And that was fighting at the front when I fell asleep last night. So it was getting up there and then dropped back a bit. It was a couple of laps off the lead at the end of the race. Uh, ben Barnicote, who has raced in, well, I saw him racing in the uh, Bark Formula Renault uh, back when I first met him, uh, was joined by Rob Bell and Ollie Wilkinson. So two people, definitely British GT fame there, uh, two laps off the lead. Um, and then another car full of British GT talent uh, is the number 63. And we can thank Michael Igo for this one because all three of these drivers became British GT drivers last year when Michael was test driving every Lamborghini factory driver under the sun. Um, it's an Orange One FFF racing team, or Triple F, but I can never quite decide which way I'm going to pronounce that, of Mirko Bortolotti, Marco Mapelli, and Andrea Caldarelli. Uh, they finished eighth overall uh, and eighth in class because they, they were a pro entry. Uh, looking further down the list, um, the fantastically named uh, Mad Panda Motorsport. And it's amazing. It is. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, was on lap 551. Um, there's names here that people that follow endurance racing will know. Ezekiel Perry Compank, uh, Ricardo Sanchez and Rick Breukers. Uh, joined by a name that anybody that's followed British GT will know, Patrick Kajala, uh, in the Mad Panda Mercedes AMG GT3. Uh, people have been trying to get the why the team's called Mad Panda out of uh, Perry Compank since, since the sort of team broke cover. He has yet to disclose it. But when we do, we'll bring you that news because it's a fantastic team name. <laughs> Garage 59, we've got... Uh, 14th place and third in in the silver cup class. Uh, Four-driver car uh, with the names jumping out here um, of Valentin Hasklo and Nikolai Kiergaard, uh, who obviously started his career racing in British Formula 3, supporting British GT. So we can, we can give him a bit of support as well. And then the first of the Barwell Motorsport cars was the, was the 77. Uh, Pro-Am entry, finished 18th overall. Miguel Ramos, um, uh, Leo Machitsky, Sandy Mitchell, and I am going to have to go back to the entry list and look for the 77 uh, to give you Enrique Chavez, uh, the name in that car that I didn't necessarily recognise straight away. A big name spread throughout the field, two, two places further back. Uh, from the Barwell Motorsport car was Earl Bamba, Porsche factory driver. Um, I say this is this is a race that attracts the big names. Twenty uh, eighth overall, uh, one of the pro M entries, Inception Racing, which as we know is Optimum, the McLaren Seven Twenty S GT Three. Not one of the more popular cars at the uh, Twenty Four Hours of Spa, but was pretty effective for quite a long time. Um, obviously, with that name, Inception Racing, it's going to be Brendan Uribe, 
sharing with Ollie Milroy and then two other drivers to complete the 24 hours driver lineup, uh, which were Kevin Madsden and Jordan Pepper. Uh, they finished 28th overall uh, in, in, in the field. So there was good, good commentary actually on, on Brendan. Um, about how he was racing against some some very stiff competition, some proper factory competition, and wasn't embarrassing himself overnight. In fact, he was doing pretty damn good stuff. Uh, and then 34th place, 474 laps, so they've obviously had trouble during the course of the race, uh, was Ram Racing. Uh, now, this is a car with some serious British GT interest in it. It was numbered 69, so Sarah can tell me the first driver in that car. I'm going to take a guess at Sam Dehan. It is Sam Dehan. Uh, can you tell me two more drivers in that car? Uh, not off the top of my head. <laughs> We've got Rob Collard and Ricky Collard. Ah. Okay. Now, obviously, Rob raced with us last year. Ricky hasn't raced with us since his GT4 days. So, But he is, he is one of our boys. Uh, the one we can't claim here is Fabian Schiller. Uh, who, as to my knowledge, has not raced in British GT. Mario Engel popped up in Mercedes AMG Team HRT. Um, he popped up along with Lucas Stoltz and Vincent Abril, uh, but finished 36th overall, um, so wasn't his best race. Neither was the British GT build car, I believe, of Nicky Katzberg. Maxi Book and Maxi Guts, who I believe all have raced in British GT. Just this is off the top of my head. Please don't send in complaints if I'm wrong. Um, and then the last car to finish was Huber Motorsports Porsche in 38th. I can't see any British GT interest in that one. There were a substantial number of not classifieds, though, and a fair bit of bad news for British GT alumni. For example, Charlie Eastwood. Uh, who was in one of the Garage 59 cars. They retired on lap 292. Uh, they got 14 hours into the race and then had to pack up. Uh, Phil Keane. Yes, Phil Keane, who was in another Orange 1 uh, FFF racing car, um, who made it 180 laps in when he was driving the car, uh, and that one retired. It was a number 19 car. He shared it with uh, B- B- Bertrand Baguette, the... Uh, the fantastically nicknamed Bertie Breadstick. Uh, he's also got Hiroshi Hamaguchi, which is a name that I've not encountered before, which is why I've just mangled the pronunciation of it. And Stefano Constantini uh, were his teammates, but uh, not everybody would have got a go in that car given when it retired. Finlay Hutchinson, uh, formerly of British GT4 fame, retired just over seven hours in the Santilock racing. He's been racing in European GT4 for quite a while now, uh, since he sort of made his name with us. Uh, and did we get Michele Beretta last year? Not to my knowledge. So, no, that's the last of the British GT fame that I can spot. Hi, I'm Scott Malvern, and you're listening to the British GT Fan Show. To keep up to date, follow their social media at BGTF Show. Now, of course, the big news 
for us in British GT is that last weekend saw the welcome return of British GT's summer holiday in our visit to Spa. Unfortunately, a number of logistical and personal issues meant that not everyone was able to attend. So the entry list prior to the event was a little bit shrunken. Our GT3 lineup was missing Endura Motorsport, Paddock Motorsport and Simon Green Motorsport. Now, all of whom are expected back for next week's Snetterton outing. And in GT4, Fox Motorsport and Car Gods with Sicily Motorsport were both unable to attend. Again, they are expected back at Snetterton. We also saw a lineup change for Beach Dean AMR as Johnny Adam was unable to attend the event due to COVID-19 protocols, which meant that Ross Gunn uh, stepped in to partner Andrew Howard. We did have some additional race-by-race entries attending, however. Uh, the Team Rocket RJN GT3 McLaren of Mere Fluid and Ewan Hankey was back for another round. And Lipert Motorsport also confirmed their first British GT appearance since 2012. FF Corsa had also entered a Ferrari as a GTC entry, which was the only one of the weekend. Now, unfortunately, the grid was to shrink a bit further before the start of the race. Uh, the Team Rocket RJN number two GT4 McLaren was withdrawn after being damaged during testing and was unable to take part in the weekend. Free practice one was a bit of an event. Uh, we had an off for the Lipert Motorsport Lamborghini Hurricane, which resulted in its withdrawal from the weekend as well. Was you there? And ask whether you actually intended to say Slamborghini there when the <laughs> S was a Freudian slip. <laughs> I did not, however, I'm tempted to leave that in. I'm going to leave that in, yes. <laughs> it was not intentional, but. <laughs> yes, you actually said Slamborghini. <laughs> Excellent. So, Lipert. Yeah, they they had an off, um, <laughs> as I think I've just covered by the renaming yeah. of their. Uh, <laughs> they had a proper off. off as well, didn't they? It was, yeah. Um, now, neither of us saw free practice one. Nick was busy working his socks off, and I was uh, madly editing the last podcast episode that we got out. Um, so we took the decision to miss free practice one, but I was there for free practice two. Um, so I understand free practice one as well. We also had an off for the team ABBA Mercedes, uh, which meant that it did not appear again until qualifying as they were fixing it up. Uh, so free practice two, the big news from that was the team Parker racing Porsche uh, which came off into the barriers at Eau Rouge, um, ultimately causing the session to be red flagged. Um, it was quite a nasty smash with the rear of the car taking the brunt of the impact. And uh, we know that the Porsche is a rear-engined car and the damage to that car was unfixable. So that, of course, put an early finish to their chances at the weekend. Now, Scott Malvin was taken to hospital as a precaution, uh, but he was released later in the day and thankfully was okay. Nick, I'm pretty sure you've probably seen that in your catching up of things. Any comments? But yeah, the, the replay I've seen has obviously slowed down because my first thoughts were that he was coming in massively slowly. 
I have since uh, had it informed to me that he was doing 170Ks at the point of impact, um, which is not a speed anybody would want to have an accident at, about 130-ish miles an hour. Uh, the rear wing appeared into shot before anything else. So obviously something's happened through Eau Rouge. Um, either, I mean, I, I don't know what happened before. My guess is either he took too much curb or something on the car broke. Um, from what I'd seen as I was watching it, it looked more like the car had hit water because it was a wet session and there was a lot of water down on the track. Right, yep. Yeah, okay, so aquaplaned at the bottom of Eau Rouge, lost control, spun it. It's kind of um, what it looked like to me. Um, yeah, and, you know, I will put my hands up here and say I'm not an expert. <laughs> that's yeah. kind of is what it looked like. The problem with Eau Rouge is that it's at the bottom of two hills. So water runs down from both hills and it can create standing water right at the point when you need maximum grip. Uh, so obviously that's spun the car around. He's gone in backwards. Um and if it has happened at the bottom of Eau Rouge, he's had time to phone the insurance company before he's hit. Um, <laughs> you don't have slow accidents there, but they can take a long time. Um, engine at the back of the car, straight in engine first. The the heaviest part of the car taking the brunt of the impact. Um, it can do all sorts of damage to to gearbox, to, to mountings, um, and potentially to to sort of like the, the chassis and the structure of the car. Um, so it's not surprising if you have an accident there that the car couldn't be, couldn't be repaired out of local resources. Um, what is worrying, given that there's only two weeks to get it back and get it fixed in, is whether that car's going to be there for SNAP. I guess we'll find out soon. Indeed. So before we move on to the race itself, uh, there's one of the car that we lost before the start of the race and it's a bit of a mystery. I think um, everybody lost this one. <laughs> yeah, the FF Corsa GTC entry. Uh it was in practice, it was in qualifying, then it disappeared into thin air. Um and Nick and I've both had a look around. We can't find anything uh to explain its absence on race day. So if anyone out there does know anything, please let us know. Yes, answers on a postcode to answer BGTF hashtag. <laughs> on a postcode. Post postcard. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's been a long weekend, all right, and I've covered a twenty-four hour race and done driving lessons. Are you after a sympathy vote? Is <laughs> one available? <laughs> Hi, I'm Mia Fluid and I'm happy to be joining the guys on British GT Fan Show. Please follow them on social media at BGTF Show. So let's talk about the race, and I'm sure we have a bit to talk about. Um, Nick's going to take the lead on this. Um, as he's fresh-eyed and bushy-tailed. <laughs> I, I, I watched the race yesterday morning. Um... And yes, I mean, first things first, let's deal with the elephant that's no longer in the room because it's taken off the back of another elephant and landed on the runoff. That accident at the start, I think we've we retweeted or, or shared on Facebook, I can't remember how it came through, 
Um, Richard Neary. He's analysed in depth his own footage from the onboard camera yeah. in the car. He's he's broken it down every point two seconds. What he saw, how he reacted, uh, how other people reacted, um, and he has pointed out that the lights were out, and then he went, and everybody else was still slowing down, and he was still going, and then everybody else realised that they'd been slow off the start, and cars came into his way, uh, an accident unfolded, and in the words of Richard Neary, slightly paraphrased, it wasn't Ian's fault. It was just a racing incident, um, and you know what? What a class act that man is. There's been a lot of history between Ian Loggy and Richard Neary and British GT, uh, most of it involving insurance excesses and trip to the body shop. And you know what? Fair play, Richard. You've you've come out, you've defended yourself, but you've also defended the other party and said, look, it was nobody's fault. I take my hat off. I mean, it was really, it was frustrating to see at the time, because especially after Donington two weeks ago, um, and obviously the big crash there, it was like, oh no, not again. But as I was watching it, it did look like, because um, there was a lot of commentary, as you would expect, on something that was quite controversial at the time. Um, so there were a lot of comments saying, you know, lame blame and pass and fault. And I looked at it and gone, I don't think he was too quick off the mark. Um, and there was another driver watching the race who weighed in and I shared that tweet because... I agreed with it. And obviously with Richard putting his post out, which is on Facebook, um, and as Nick said, we've shared it on our page, um, but you can look at it on Team Other's page as well. Um, it's a really good breakdown. Um, and I was really impressed with the level of detail that went in to it. And it does very, very clearly lay out exactly what's happened. And I think there's little room for argument um in the way that Richard has laid the whole thing out and the pictures that have been put there. And again, I echo what Nick said. It it was a really well-rounded explanation that lays to rest any sort of gripes or or judgment that anyone can place. And at the end of the day, you know, we're sat watching it and it's very easy to backseat drive, but we're not the ones out there doing it. I would also point out that the first time I saw the accident as live, I'd already seen Richard's analysis of it. Um, but I was sat there and I was watching it. And I was watching it on an iPad, so I wasn't watching it on a big screen. Um, but I was sat there watching it and I have absolutely no idea how the commentary team could have got it as wrong as they did. It was clear as day the lights were out when Richard pulled to the right. But... These things are these things. The other thing that nobody appeared to have noticed throughout the first stint, Andrew Howard in the big gym, Aston Martin, was saying that he got hit up the back at the start. And everybody in the commentary team and whatnot were saying, oh, no, he can't have been hit up the back at the start because Barwell was behind him. And their uh, data was, says that they yeah. haven't hit him. <laughs> if you watch the accident, 
the Team Abba car goes over the Ram car and into the back of the Beach Dean car. It was, it was the Team Abba car which caught the Beach Dean car. And being fair, at that time, it only had three wheels on it. It didn't have a lot of choice. But that's where the damage to the back of the Beach Dean car came from. I, I, I saw it, first time I watched it, I saw Mercedes catch Aston Martin and thought, Andrew's done well to hold that. Mm. I say, if you, wa- if you watch it, I think it was um, uh, Adam Ballard that was alongside Ian Loggy at the start. And he basically saw it happening and dropped back. He, dro- he dropped back, which created the space that the Mercedes, that the ABBA Mercedes landed in and then got collected by another car, which span it around and, and pinned the, the Newbridge car. That's where that where that damage to the back of the Aston Martin came from. It was it was caught by a low flying Mercedes. And as I'm sure we'll come on to you later, as you said, you know, Andrew did really well to to hold the car up with with the damage it had got. And it was clear later on in the race, um, you know, that, that damage was there and it was causing an impact. Yeah, it spars a very heavily aerodependent circuit. Um I am continuing to talk about this accident and the effects of it, I am frankly amazed that Ram Racing put that car back out for more laps because on such an aero-dependent circuit with the rear wing as badly deranged as that was after they repaired it because it did not look like a healthy Mercedes, did it? No, no, it didn't. Um, And it was shown in that there were places that GT4 cars we're passing the Ram Racing car on pace. <laughs> they were, the GT4 cars were being held up by the Ram Racing car where the drivers got their feet under them because the aero balance was completely off. Centre of pressure was in completely the wrong place. And then, yeah, uh, Matt Topham, fair play. That man knows where the brake pedal is because he should have he should have joined the back of that accident and didn't. Yeah, and I... I thought he had to start with and then especially when we saw him reversing and I think everyone did um, and then he reappeared entirely unscathed or mostly unscathed. Yeah, what I will say, the only thing I could potentially say against Richard Neary and it isn't really his fault, it's more race control's fault is Richard Neary wasn't in position when the lights changed. But that's because he'd just come out of the bus stop chicane. He had lots of cars weren't in position. The lights changed very early. But yeah, watching it from watching it from the front is it's it's really scary. And then there was later later contact with uh, one of the GT4 cars, one of the GT4 Century Motorsport cars going up the inside of a of a GT3. Oh, up the inside of the GT3 car that was basically missing a wheel. Uh, Ian Loggy's car. Yeah. It's it's just one of those things. It's just one of those things. It's it's an and whenever an accident happens at the start of a at the at the at the front of a grid, you're liable to pick up somebody from further back. And I think it was quite lucky in a way that it wasn't worse than it was I mean a lot of people did think it was worse because obviously we thought that the Newbridge 
uh, Carl was involved in. It actually wasn't, but there were a couple of good escapes um, as well and some good avoidance going in there. Um, yeah. With all of that drama at the start of the race as well, uh, something that became uh, known and apparent a little bit further in was the GT4 Toyota Gazoo racing number 15 car. An investigation was launched not long into the race as it turned out that it uh, jumped to position at the start or wasn't in the right place at the start and uh, received a bit of a penalty for that. Yes. Which was annoying because it's having, again, it was having one of its really good races. Just to be blighted by a procedural error. Yeah, it doesn't seem to be able to catch a, a break. Um, yeah, I mean, what actually happened, I think it's not massively clear. I, I think there was a replay looking back to it. But again, it's it's just unfortunate for that car. Yeah, if they didn't have bad luck, they wouldn't have any. Yeah. But yes, and um, weren't they also involved in a contact at La Source? Uh it's possible. Didn't one car get knocked into them for for a light touch? Because wasn't there wasn't there yeah. coming from that car as well? I think so. I know they. they it was all a bit it. busy in the first. Well, T minus one hundred yards. Yeah. <laughs> so I know they ended up in the pits quite early on, um, and for quite a while as well. I think it was a damper issue off the top of my head. It was, didn't, wasn't the car not behaving well and they found out they got a broken damper? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I'm I'm sort of scanning through notes here. Yeah, you've thrown me out of my order. <laughs> well, feel free to drag us back into it. I mean, we've had, we've had a bit of drama, but we had some, uh, some good stuff happening towards the start of the race as well. Um, I mean, I'll I'll say this now: it was a really good race for Balf overall. And I am jumping ahead a little bit, and I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit in more detail as we go through. Um, but- I say, especially bear in mind they were carrying damage from taking the number three to the side, where the number three was exploding all over the front straight. Mm. Um, if that took damage before the start finish line. And then had the race it had, that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, the number 90 GT4 was up there right from the start um, and and stayed there. Yeah, it was... Others got up there and and sort of tried to lead and 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 had their fun. But the only one that could sort of stay there for the distance was, was the number 90. Which is, which is good to see because McLaren was the car to have for five years. And it's all but disappeared in the class now, isn't it? I'm not saying that, it's four cars. Um, there's, there's four cars, but it's nowhere near as populous as it used to be. Um, and it, it, it's good to see. And it's also good to see that it's not, and I, I, I wish nothing against them but it's not RJN. It's not the people McLaren have picked as, right, these are the McLaren people to go for. It's 
it's Balfe has been McLaren since they since they came back into GT racing, and he's like, come on, yeah, we know what we do with these cars as well. I mean, RJ and I think have have had a bit of bad luck as well, um, especially this last weekend. Um, you know, it was it was unfortunate to see Mir and you and out before even having a chance because uh, Mia was showing some good pace during practice and qualifying. I think with with RJN, I, th- I think they took race transporters out and brought the cars back in a skip lorry and half of, the, half, half of the accidents weren't their fault. Mm. It's just wrong place, wrong time. And, and losing two, two of their cars in the same accident, which, was, which wasn't their fault. It's a nightmare. But shall we talk about uh, the good point of RJN, which was the number four car? Yes, let's talk about the number four car. Again, Um, very unlucky, um, but a really good drive uh, from both Harry Hayek and Katie Milner. Some great defensive driving from Katie, especially in the second half of the race. Um, And I was absolutely gutted. To see her stationary on the track, I, 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 I honestly, I don't, I don't know what to, what to say. They were, they were rolling, really going pretty damn well, and I'm sitting there thinking, it's starting to come together for these guys. Yeah. Um, and then it, it just stopped. <laughs> yeah. And what was the cause of the breakdown again? It was a puncture. It's a puncture, and it was. Right towards the end as well, wasn't it? It was. It was. It was only a few laps yeah. towards the end. So it was, as I say, it was absolutely gutting uh, to see that car stationary, especially after she'd done such a good job just prior to that. I am. Yes, she had done a very good job of defending as well. Obviously, the main talking point from the first half of the race was before the start line. But we really do need to talk about Leo Machitsky. And the reason we really have to talk about Leo Machitsky is we didn't say pretty much anything about him last episode. The episode before we were saying things that were perfectly true but not particularly complimentary about him. And that man drove well. And... I think we should also point out that he's driven well twice at Spa now because they didn't do too badly in the 24 hours either. Um, Now, we know that Andrew Howard was carrying damage. But after the start, after the safety car, Leo got away, he gapped Andrew, and Andrew managed to bang in the fastest lap of the race before before the pit window opened. but Leo Machitsky managed to gap Andrew Howard um, and hand his his teammate, obviously Dennis Lind, a fairly handy advantage at the uh, at, at the pit stops. And I think it needs to be said. I mean, first of all, he was very sportsmanlike. He did a fantastic job behind the wheel. He kept it as clean as he could. And he did his job. 
he handed over to to Dennis Lind, who who finished the job off. Dennis couldn't have won the race if Leo didn't give him a car in a winning position. Yeah, in a position I mean, where he could one. Leo was confident going in. Um, in the interview mm-hmm. before he said, you know, this is my race. This this is what I know. Um, mm-hmm. and I fully intend to to be up there. And he was true to his word. Can't argue with it. Yeah, I mean, Leo's been doing GT World Challenge for a few years, hasn't he? Mm. So he's done probably 15, 20 times as many laps around Spa as he has around any, any, other, any other circuit that he's going to race on this year. He knows that place like the back of his hand, and it showed. It showed there is two things you need to be fast at Spa. One of them is experience, and the other one I can't say on a podcast that isn't being uh, rated as R, because you need very big brass. And it appears that Leo's got, got both. So before we move on to the pit window, it's probably worth talking about Stuart Proctor's race as well. Uh, you know, you're right. He had a great stint um, and did a fantastic job of holding off the number 18 car. There was some fantastic mm. defensive driving and mm. right the way through he was uh, being challenged, shall we say. Yeah, and it wasn't just um, the number 18 either, was it? It was also, no. it was, there were two Lamborghinis involved, wasn't it? Was that Adam Ballon as well? Yep. Yep, there was a so, bit of a, a, a three-way battle going on at one point uh, where... Number one of Adam Ballon and 18 of Michael Igo were uh, playing a bit of switcheroo um, as they were catching up to Stuart Proctor. Um, Michael Igo was mostly the victor in that. Uh, there was some good moves by Ballon and really good to watch, um, to be fair. But yeah, Igo catching up to Stuart Proctor. Let us see a bit of, of what he can do. Uh, we've not seen that much from him this season so far. Are you um, talking about Michael or you talking about Stuart? Stuart, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think the only person who doesn't think that Stuart had a revelationary stint or did, had a, a great stint, I think the only person that thinks he didn't is Michael, <laughs> who would probably wished he could have had a much better stint by being behind a red Lamborghini than rather than in front. <laughs> um, because, I mean, we're talking two experienced drivers now. Michael's been GT3 for two years. Adam's been GT3 for three years, four years now. Something yeah. like that. Definitely three, maybe four. And they both threw every tool in the box at Stuart to get past him. And I have no idea how they've managed to fit fit a McLaren that wide into a standard lorry, but God knows how they did it. I think it's got, you know, like uh, you press a button and you get wings pop out. It it must be because... A bit Batmobile-esque. I mean, you know, it's it's another Balfamobile, isn't it? So... (laughs) But it was a proper, proper defensive race from Stuart and he did it brilliantly. Okay, he let... First and second place get away. But he had a place on the podium and he was determined to keep his hands on it. Mm. And there, there aren't many drivers that could take that much pressure for that long. 
because it was unrelenting. I think if he got, well, after 20 minutes into the race, five minutes after the safety car went in, if he got one lap of that track where he wasn't having to defend, I'd be surprised. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I hashtagged that tweet as well with Gandalf. Yeah. It's... And you know what? It it held everybody's attention, including the directors. Because lap after lap after lap, we were just watching three drivers doing what they do, living their best life, as the phrase goes these days, and thoroughly enjoying it. And just quite a lot of respect for each other as well. Mm. This is what British GT... The, that race, that 40 minutes there is what British GT has always been and should always be about. Three bloody good ams going at it hammer and tongs and enjoying the heck out of it. So shall we move on to the, I think what for this is probably the other talking point of the race, which was the uh, pit windows. Yeah, um, I mean, before we get to the pit window, shall we talk about Andrew Howard's first stop? <laughs> which That's is kind a, of what I was getting at. Which is a very, very cruel way of putting it, but it kind of had to be done, didn't it? <laughs> um, yeah. Um, I don't know what happened, whether it was a communications issue, whether the clock was running fast in the Aston Martin. But Andrew Howard turned up a lap early for his pit stop. Eek, oops. Um, obviously, Ross Gunn came out looking slightly confused. A man in sort of like crew chief overalls was almost yelling at the man that pays his wages to get the car out of the spot because he's not allowed to be there yet. Uh, so Andrew Howard went away. Um, obviously, a little bit miffed off with himself because while he was going away, he sped um, and picked up a penalty for pit lane speeding as well. So uh, he needed to do one trip down pit lane. He ended up ended up doing three as a result of it. Not his finest hour. Well, I think he only two because I think it was Ross Gunn that ended up picking up the penalty. It was Ross Gunn that served the penalty. You are right. But uh... um, I believe it was a bit of miscommunication as well. I'm just going back through kind of my notes and and tweets. Mm-hmm. Um. And there was a confirmation that he was called in a lap early. So someone's either, and say there's either a clock not quite right somewhere or someone's added up wrong. Um, These things happen. It's human error, but it's so frustrating as Andrew was having a really good race. Yeah. Um, It's it's three away second place. Yeah. Didn't it? And I totally get his frustration at kind of going in and then finding out, actually, no, you're not in now. Mm. So it's <laughs> the only thing is, most teams will have something in the car to let the driver know how long their stint is. Uh, um, you know, them race logic boxes you see attached to the dashboard. Mm-hmm. I believe they're linked into the timing and scoring system somehow. So they know how long the stint length is. And 
that stint length is determined from when the green flag goes, not from when they pull the car away from for the formation lap. So there was there is a clock inside the car. You can press the buttons and if you can reach them. I, th- I think you'll find that there'll either be another box in there at the next race, or they'll have, um, uh, or they'll have one set so it shows stint length, mm. so yeah, that was, the driver's a last check. I was thinking about this a little bit um, mm. because <coughs> Spa is obviously a long circuit in terms of lap length. Yep. So I'm wondering if that might have played into a calculation going. A bit awry, um, especially about lap times and going. Well, actually, if you come in this lap, you should have hit the pit window by the time you get there. Possibly, but they didn't miss it by 15, 20 seconds. They missed it by a minute. Yeah, um, and that's what I'm saying. If they've yeah gone, you know, two minutes thirty-five, mm-hmm. or you know, as pulling a number out of the air, um on average for a lap, then we'd anticipate this. What were the weather forecasts for race day? Uh, it was forecast to be mixed, I believe, because there was thoughts there would be rain and it ended up dry. You know what's happened? They've briefed strategy based on a wet race, where lap times are 2.35 rather than 2.20. They've given... I mean, this is just my supposition. But that's a, that's, that's a great thought. They could have said, right, at the end of lap 15, you're in, thinking it's going to be mixed conditions. We could be averaging 225, not 218. And over those 15 laps, that eight seconds has added up to over a minute. Are you impressed? I'm well impressed, given that you picked a number out the air, which is an appropriate lap time for a wet, wet lap at Spa. <laughs> I was more thinking about my thinking about it. Yeah, but yeah, that 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 could well be what's happened is that they've they've gone right. We'll be pitting on this lap, and they picked up the wet lap playbook rather than the dry lap playbook. Either way, the upshot of it is that it's it's cost Andrew Howard the leader of the championship mm. because he is. 1.5 points behind Leo Machitsky and Dennis, and Dennis Lind. And he scored 18 points rather than 27. Yeah. Could have been a lot worse. It is unfortunate. Hi, I'm Nathan Freak, team owner of Century Motorsport, and you're listening to the British GT Fan Show. Find them across all social media at BGTF Show. So let's move on to the second half of the race. Um, Obviously, all the drivers have changed around. And I think the standout for me um, in the second half of the race was the GT4 battle uh, that was going on for quite a while. Um, Some absolutely outstanding driving um, for all of the above, Andrew Gordon Colbrook, Matt Cowley and Senna Fielding uh, in the Century Motorsport BMW Academy Motorsport Mustang and the Stella Motorsport Audi, respectively. Um, you know, it was respectful overtaking, respectful challenging. And it was, again, everything that you would want to 
to see in a race, you know, even causing a little bit of uh, hesitation for <laughs> GT3 drivers as well, but in a good way. Um, cause I think, you know, we've touched on Leo and Machitsky having a great race. And of course he handed over to Dennis Lind who, uh, took it and ran basically. Yeah, I think we we really do need to take our hats off to the Century Motorsport Guys Academy and to uh, Stella Motorsport as literally the only people that could slow down Bauer Motorsport's pace. <laughs> um, I mean, Dennis Lind handled that absolutely perfectly. He had knocking on for 50 seconds in hand. He did not need to stick his nose in that fight. Because that fight, you are right, it was 100% respect asked, respect given. It was really firm but fair racing. But the last thing the race leader wanted to do was to stick his nose into that hornet's nest. Because it could very well have been taken off. A lot of of respect was earned from these guys. I mean, the Sentry guys have been running at the front all along. But the Mustang and the Audi in particular have not had seasons that have covered themselves in glory, have they? Um, yeah. And it showed what those two cars can do and what those four drivers can do. Because as with what I said about Dennis Lind earlier, Matt Cowley and Senan Fielding wouldn't have been in a position to have that fight if Will Moore and Richard Williams hadn't set it up for them. And it's just, it was great to watch. It was absolutely stunning. And I might go and watch it again. (laughs) So we had, I think, especially through the second half of the race, um, you know, one, it was really nice to see um, more coverage being given to the GT4 cars. But that's where the interesting stuff was, because say we'd got, this fantastic battle going on. You've got Katie Bilner fending off Gus Burton, who, you know, has been the runaway driver of GT4 so far. And again, it it was respectful and props to her for when he finally did get the jump on her because she knew it was the right time to, to let him past. Yeah, she, no- she knew what to fight and she knew what not to fight. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that is the experience that I think, you know, you do want to be getting as you're as you're learning your racecraft. It's a shame that she's not gonna be in championship contention. Mm. Because those sorts of decisions are what make championships. Isn't it? You can't yeah. win every race and picking which ones you're not gonna win. Um is is rather than fighting every battle to the death. So it showed it showed maturity. Yeah. Uh one person we've not really touched on so far during the second half of the races is, is Darren Turner and his race. So shall we talk about that now? Yeah, he he did a damn good job of chasing down the Balfour Motorsport car and passing it. Mm. And given that he chased it down and passed it, and then sort of drove for a bit. And then picked up the penalty for track limits. It seems a bit silly boy, doesn't it? A little bit. Um, 
I mean, I don't know what your thoughts are because I know when we were, well, when I was watching, you know, um, he didn't come in when we expected him to. I don't know, you having a bit more experience than me, do you think that was a a hope that it'd be converted to a penalty? or Because I know there was a bit of argument of as to him receiving the penalty to start with. If there's ever any doubt, um, if you think you've got a case to argue on that sort of thing, and if you're not being held up by the car in front, go to the stewards afterwards and fight the case. Because the worst thing that's going to happen at that point is they're going to convert the drive-through that you should have taken, which is 21 seconds, into a 30-second time penalty. But... If you can pull out that 30 seconds over third place, then it doesn't matter if on paper you finished a tenth of a second behind first place or 29 seconds behind first place, providing you still finish in second. Um, So I think Darren did, strategically, he did the right thing. In terms of sportsmanship, the penalty was given in plenty of time. He should have taken it. Um, but you can't argue it after the case. No. No. And I um, know... It is too late at that point. Yeah. If I remember rightly, the argument was that there's an unfair focus on him, um, which I'm not quite sure what I make of that. They're saying that he was almost being picked on. The judge's effect on the posts may pay closer attention to a car, but not because they don't like the livery and not because they don't like the drivers that are in it. They'll pay closer attention to a car if, in their experience, that car is more likely to transgress the rules in their area. So, to me, if Darren Turner doesn't want to be focused upon for driving, for track limits, driving standards, then all he's got to do is ensure that he treats the space between the white lines as a racetrack and not the space outside of it. Uh, So he doesn't give them a reason to watch his car like a hawk every time it comes through their zone. I mean, he was by all means not the only person to uh, receive track limits warnings or even penalties. I mean... Adam Barron and Sandy Mitchell picked, uh, they also got a 30 second time penalty for track limits at the end yeah. of the race. And, and theirs was very close to the end of the race. So yeah. straight out time penalty, which is where my kind of question about it being, with it being earlier, there was time for him to go and serve that penalty on yeah. there. But there were, there were all the way through the weekend, you know, there was a lot of track limits being given. Um, and to be honest, I gave up at one point kind of noting that there'd been more track limits infringements because it was just coming that quick. You did that at Silverstone as well, didn't you? Yeah, but that that was ridiculous. At one point, oh. we were on like seven cars on, on one turn. What's, what's <laughs> common between Silverstone and, and Spa, which is not true of any other circuit on the on the calendar? Silverstone and Spa are both current Formula One circuits. That too. So they've got miles of concrete runoff. 
Yeah. There is no penalty to going off the track at Spa except for a time penalty. You try that crap at Donington Park after a rainstorm and you're going straight to the scene of a massive accident. It's there at those two circuits, track limits are always going to be an issue because unless somebody sees it, there's no risk. Mm. But yeah, he, he was by no means the the only person to be picked up for infringing track limits. Yeah. As I say, as a sportsman, being sportsman-like, yes, he should have taken the penalty. Being strategic-like and looking for championship chances. Bear in mind, they missed the first round. Yeah. So they're already on the back foot in the championship. But they're third in the championship. So Newbridge Motorsport, having missed the first round and having dented the car rather significantly at Donington Park, are the only people that can stop a Century Motorsport 1-2 in GT4. Mm. And I I absolutely get the Mm. playing the longer game. Um, Mm. You know, but I think for me, it took away a little bit of just how good a race the number 90 had. Because we talked a little bit about um, Ashley Marshall in the first half and and their race and and the number 90s race. But, you know, Jack Brown, again, built on what Ashley had done and kept it going. And we've not mentioned much because, you know, the, the interesting, the more interesting stuff was happening further down um, in there. But Jack Brown took it only getting overtaken by Darren Turner um, and a little bit bittersweet because it was such a good race for them and they got the win. But, but I'm sure they'd rather have won on the road. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I get that. And this is why I say that being in boxing, it's the markets of Queensbury rules, isn't it? Mm. Um, so fighting fairly, be, being a good pugilist, um, he should have taken the penalty. But if he'd taken the penalty, would he have would he have still been ahead of Century Motorsport of of of, of Will Burns and Gus Burton? Um, possibly, possibly because the the Newbridge Motorsport car got an extra lap over. Century Motorsport. So the race leader was between the 57 and the 27 at the end of the race because there's two minutes, 37 seconds between them. So the Aston Martin would have been three seconds ahead of Will Burns and Gus Burton without the, um, if he'd if taken the penalty. But... I say I, I say I'd have taken the penalty. I've never been in that situation. No, and I don't expect to ever be in that situation. So. I, I definitely won't be in that situation unless I lose enough weight in the driver's seat. But yes, slightly sour taste. Yeah, I'm. I'm just let's say a little bit. It's a shame that it it overshadowed what was a really good win for. 
for the number 90. Yes. And if, a fantastic drive overall by both both them. I mean, if you're going to say that a McLaren was going to win the race, would you have, would you have said it was going to be that car? Uh, based on this season so far, no. Yeah, exactly. And it was... They stood up and said, Oi, we are here. Watch us. Um, and I don't think they put a wheel wrong. Ashley judged the crash at the start perfectly and would have got away with it scot-free if he hadn't been collected by the number three on the way through. Despite the fact they took damage, they drove pretty much flawless race. Uh, fastest lap was only a second slower than Darren Turner's. And Ashley Marshall and Jack, uh, and Jack Brown are both silver drivers. Darren Turner is platinum. You don't get any more professional than Darren Turner. Yeah. So, I mean, it definitely showed what, what they were capable of. Yeah. And I think looking ahead a bit now, um, you know, towards Snetterton, the first of the sprint races uh, next week, you know, it has opened it up a bit because we've seen some driving from from some people that we hadn't seen up until Spa. And if they can keep that level of performance up there, I think it's going to be really, really interesting to see both with the different dynamics of the sprint race um, and the fact that there are people in the fight that haven't been up until now and um, to see how that that develops. Yeah. Oh, just do me a favour, don't ask me to make projections for Snetterton. I was not going to. <laughs> yes, because <laughs> cat pigeons. The uh, thing is, I don't, and that's kind of what I was trying to say. I, I don't think we can consider making any predictions going into Snetterton. So that wraps up this episode of the British GT Fan Show. Don't forget to check out our partners, TCF Sports Cars and the Checkered Flag for everything motorsport. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure you keep up to date with the British GT Fan Show. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the British GT Fan Show. Remember, the show's for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, redistributed or used in any other form without permission. For more information about this, please visit our website, www.bgtfshow.co.uk or contact us via our social media, at bgtfshow. British GT Fan Show is a Storm Vixen Creative and RPS driven media production. To find out more, visit our website at www.bgtfshow.co.uk.